We are now several weeks into a sermon series where we're walking through the story of the Bible. And as we've been doing that, there's been a a question kind of hovering in the background. And and that question is, um, where is all of this going? As we looked at creation and and, and looked at God's acts in creation and then uh, the fall that came shortly thereafter in Genesis chapter 3 and rejoiced at God's covenant that he entered into with Abraham and beheld his glory and that great salvific work of the Exodus and then the promise of of a Davidic heir, Uh, the the question that we have is is what's the goal of all of this? Where is is God taking all of this? Where is this story moving? And and really the answer to that comes today. Uh, Christ is the goal, right? Christ is the answer. Christ is the fulfillment to God's purposes and plans. The story of the Bible reaches its pinnacle. It reaches really its climax in Christ Jesus. The unfolding story of Scripture finds its purpose in the coming of the Messiah. And so we're going to turn our attention this morning to consider his coming, to consider the incarnation, the wonderful truth that God became flesh. But as we do that, Uh, we need to reckon with the fact that time and familiarity can have a way of dulling our senses to something. The more we're exposed to something and the more we interact with something, it can actually have this effect where where we no longer kind of have this sense of awe or enjoyment or wonder at that thing. Now, there's multiple things I could use for examples. I was thinking about using marriage, and I thought, that is a horrible example uh, that's, one that's, that's one that gets you in trouble on the ride home. Uh, I, my marriage is more wondrous than it ever has been. Let me just go ahead and record and say that. That's recorded, I think, right? Yes. But take something very simple like, like food, right? Like food. So we think about food, and uh, we often here in the United States, uh, if we want to eat something a little exotic, right, maybe a foreign food, we tend to pay more for it, whether that's maybe French food or, or Indian food or something from southern Wyoming, right? We, we pay... <laughs> We pay a little more for it because we, we anticipate to get this kind of sense of excitement and awe that we're not getting from the meat and potatoes we've been eating week in and week out. And uh, so I used to travel a lot with TLI. So I worked with uh, Training Leaders International prior to coming here. And I would travel a lot. And I would go to India a ton. I, I looked at it at one point. I think I've been to India like somewhere around uh, 16, 17, 18 times. And uh, I love Indian food. I, I loved Indian food before I went to India. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. It's delicious. The flavors and the spices that they have, it's, it's unmatched. It's unparalleled. And I've eaten food in many places. Indian food is unmatched and unparalleled for its spices and its depth of flavor. And, and if we want to eat Indian here, it, it, it costs us a pretty penny. But I've been to India. And you, and you know what's funny about India is, um, you know, do you know what they call Indian food in India? They call it food. I was shocked. I was like, do you have any idea what you're dealing with here? Are, are, are you aware of what you have? But you walk up and down the streets, and the streets are crawling with delicious food. There's curries, right? There's, there's butter naan as far as the eye can see. There's, there's my absolute favorite, which is gulab jamun, which if you ever have opportunity to eat gulab jamun, you, you should. Uh, I never really knew how to explain it until this morning it just came to me. Uh, gulab jamun, is, it's, it's like the big bang, big bang of desserts, right? It's all this sugar and sweetness condensed into an infinitesimal dot, 
that when you bite it just explodes. It's, uh, if you're a diabetic, it will kill you, so stay away from it. But it's delicious. And, and, and the crazy thing, too, is it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere, and it's cheap. It's like dirt cheap. And you're sitting there looking at these people going, do you know what you're messing with right now? Do you know how delicious this is? And then they look at me as a foreigner like, what are you getting so excited about? All right, so their, their, their proximity, their, their familiarity has kind of, you know, in a way, dulled their appreciation and their senses to it. And so if it can happen with something as simple as, as food, I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say, I, th- I think that could happen with our approach to scripture as well, too. Like we can become so comfortable and familiar with a passage or with a truth or with a doctrine that's taught that we cease to stand in awe of how majestic and wonderful and earth-shattering that reality is. I mean, I know it's uh, October, but the, the copious amounts of snow on the ground allow me to go here. Christmas is coming up. And every Christmas, what do we celebrate? We celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate God came in human flesh, and we have a manger, and we do this, but oftentimes the shift, the focus gets shifted to presents, or the focus gets shifted to family, gets shifted to what's being cooked and what's being eaten, and we, we, we forget, we forget what's happening, right? I, I don't think this is the first time that you've, you've heard John's prologue. I think that's a safe bet. Now, if this, now, if this morning when this was read, there's the first time you've ever heard John's prologue, rejoice. Rejoice at the word of the Lord. Receive the word of the Lord, right? But I'm guessing that most of you have heard this before. And, and if most of you have heard it before and you're kind of familiar with it, then I don't think I'm uh, like kind of uh, going out on a limb here, or I, or I don't think I'm going where I don't belong to say that maybe, just maybe, we are failing to grasp how amazing this is. How earth-shattering this reality is. How cosmically transformative what takes place between verse 1 and 14 is. And so my, my hope this morning as we continue the, the story of the Bible is to reawaken our collective awe at what God has done through Jesus Christ. To stand in awe of the fact that God took to himself human nature and came into his creation for the purpose of saving lost sinners such as you and I. Now, before we can jump into the text, there are two things that we need to address first. Because in this text, there are clearly presented two essential Christian doctrines that we don't want to get muddled, right? Two essential Christian doctrines that that we don't want to, to misunderstand or misconstrue and kind of impart false conclusions on. Because honestly, that's been done throughout history, These two doctrines in particular have have had their fair share of heretical bents to them. And so we want to have common terminology, common understanding, and a common approach as we go into John together. So the first of those Christian doctrines is the Trinity. Now we understand that Trinity is not a biblical word in that Trinity is not found anywhere in the scriptures, but the word Trinity describes for us a true and clear biblical principle that we see presented in the text. And that is that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three of these are unique in their personhood, right? Such that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. But all three are equally divine, equally worthy of worship and praise, and equally eternally God. Yet we don't have three gods 
We have one God eternally existing in three persons. This is the Trinity. The second doctrine that we see here is the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, much like Trinity, incarnation is not a biblical word that we see in the text, but rather it is a word that we use to describe a clear biblical principle presented in the scriptures. Now, the word uh, incarnation in and of itself means enfleshed, and it rightly expresses a biblical teaching that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son, took to himself human nature. So that when we speak of the incarnation, we are speaking of Jesus, the Son, taking to himself human nature so that there is in one person, Jesus Christ, two complete, full natures. One human, one divine. They are not mixed, they are not mingled, they are not diminished in any way, but they are fully existing in one person, Jesus, the God-man. So the Trinity and the Incarnation, these two doctrines present in this text and help us form and understand what John is presenting to us here in the beginning of his gospel. And so with those two clearly understood, as clearly as they can be understood, uh, we're going to jump into this text together. So as we look at John's gospel, we understand that John's gospel is kind of an anomaly, right? He kind of sticks out like a sore thumb amongst all the gospel writers. That's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics in that they look alike, and John's just kind of called John, right? Where the other gospel writers, thank you, Brad, the other gospel writers, it's a a tough crowd, the other gospel writers (laughs) begin the ministry of Jesus Christ in time and space John pushes the beginning of the gospel ministry of Jesus to eternity past. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, those first few verses there should should sound, or first few words should sound very familiar, right? John is deliberately echoing Genesis 1-1 in order to take the mind of the reader, our minds, and move us back. To say the story doesn't begin here in Nazareth, it doesn't begin here in Bethlehem, it doesn't begin here in Israel, the story begins back. And back where? Back in the beginning. And I would argue the beginning of all beginnings, beginnings in its absolute sense, right? A time outside of time, a place outside of place, a time when there was no creation, there was only God. God existing and God alone existing. And so what do we see there in the beginning? Well, look what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, as we look at these two verses, two things become very clear to us. The first is that the Word, who is in the beginning with God, is distinct from God distinct from God. John writes, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God. For all you uh, English majors in here, can I have all the English majors stand up? I'm just kidding. Um, all you English majors, with is it's a preposition. It, 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 is, it is denoting relationship, right? Some translations even go so far as to say existing face-to-face with God. So there's a sense of separation, this sense of uniqueness. The Father's there, and the Word is there, or God is there, and the Word is there, and the Word is with God in the beginning. They're distinct from one another. But the other thing we see here is that the Word who's in the beginning with God and is distinct from God is also God. John writes, he was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. Now, if we were to read that in the original Greek, John actually writes, and, the God, and God was the Word. 
putting God first in order to emphasize the divinity, the deity of the word. And so in these first two verses, what John does is he presents to us this time before time, this place before place, this this space where there's just God, but not just God, there's God and the word, the word who is distinct from God and yet the word who is God. And so there's the word and there's God and there's this unique relationship that exists between the two of them. Now, John captures the uniqueness of that relationship by his use of the word, word. Now, at the time that John is writing, most likely in the late, late in the first century, that word, logos, you've probably heard it before, had uh, multiple ways that it could be understood. A majority of them, a majority of them, if they're imparted on biblical truth, end up being heretical. But John's understanding of the word is not shaped by the culture around him. John's understanding of word and the reason he uses word is because he is deeply shaped by what we see and what he experienced from the Old Testament. Right? And if we go into the Old Testament and we understand how God's word is seen and expressed in the Old Testament, what we find out is that in the Old Testament, God's word is his powerful, authoritative declaration that is active in creation, revelation, and redemption. It's God's powerful self-declaration. I mean, we go back to Genesis 1 again. I think, again, where John wants us to be, right? He wants us to be there. And, And we think of creation, and what do we find in creation? God does what? He speaks creation into existence. God declares, let there be light, and light responds. In fact, God speaks into the nothingness that's there, and the nothingness responds into something, and it can't not respond. It's not, like, it's not like nothingness is sitting there going, well, maybe we should or maybe we shouldn't. What do you think? It's bound by the power of God's word. The divine imperative goes out, and creation must respond. Now, and I think about this in terms of, of being a father. Um, God reveals himself to us as father, and I'm, I'm a father uh, of five beautiful children, and, and I think about my word in my own home. And oftentimes in my own home, I'll say, hey, I'll speak to one of my sons, the one that's slightly taller than the other son, slightly older. You can narrow it down. <laughs> and I'll say to him, hey, son, come here. And more often than not, I hear, wait a minute, just a minute, wait a minute, just a minute. I'll be there in a minute. Give me a minute, five minutes. Can I come in a minute? And I'm th- sitting there thinking, going, do you know who I am? <laughs> Do you, do you know what this place is? This is my home. This is my kingdom. This is where I rule. When I speak, you respond. You come. But what do we find oftentimes as fathers? That it doesn't work that way. Right? And if you're in here right now and you're on the edge of being a father or you have young children and you have all these illusions in your mind, let me disabuse you of those. It doesn't work out exactly like you thought it would. And yet that's not how it is with God. When he speaks, creation responds. In fact, God says, my word shall not return void. It will go out and it will accomplish everything I sent it to do. So it begins to make perfect sense that this is how John speaks of the pre-incarnate Jesus. I mean, think about it. He could have said in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God, but he, he doesn't. 
he uses this term word. Why? Because Jesus is the fullest, clearest expression of God's divine power and majesty. In fact, this is a major theme through the book of John. As you go through John's gospel, it's always about Jesus and the Father. And he says, I do what the Father tells me to do, and I honor my Father. And he speaks of the unity of him and the Father. And then he talks about, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In fact, look, look where our, our passage ends this morning. It ends at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he <coughs> excuse me, has made him known. And so Jesus, the, the powerful, authoritative, declarative self-expression of the infinite, eternal, ever-existing, all-powerful and mighty God, this is the word. And so in the first two verses, John firmly establishes not only the pre-existent nature of Jesus Christ, but the fullness of his divinity as well. John then goes on to emphasize the creative power and glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. Look at me in verses 3 through 5. It says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Keeping this Genesis theme that he started in verse 1, he references creation. And he says, in creation, as all creation is being brought into existence, it is the Word. It is the second person of the Trinity. It is Jesus who is bringing all things into creation. And John does this in an interesting way, right? In verse 3, he uses this positive statement reinforced by this negative statement as well in order to speak of the totality of the creative power of Jesus Christ. Right? If you look at verse 3, it says, all things were made through him. And we could stop right there, right? I mean, in, in some ways, that's sufficient, correct? All things were made through him. What are all things? They're all things. I mean... That's the easiest part of the sermon interaction right there. I mean, what are all things? They're all things. Like if there's one thing outside of all things, then that's not all things. But it's all things. But John doesn't leave it there, right? He says all things were made through him, and nothing that has been made was not made through. Was, I'm getting confused. And he says without him was not anything made that was made. So without Jesus, without the word, without the second person of the Trinity, nothing comes into creation. He brings all things into creation. Later, Paul talks about how he brings all things into creation, and all creation is not only through him, but it is for him. No doubt this in some way speaks against an early church heresy that saw Christ as one of the created beings, the first of God's creative acts. And John says, no, Jesus is not the first of God's created acts. He is ever eternally existing, and all things that have been brought into creation were brought into creation through his power, through his majesty, through his divine initiative and his divine imperative. And then the, the creation theme continues. John says that in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Again, we think of God speaking into the darkness. And it's not just God speaking. It is in this miraculous, divine, unknown way to us now, but one day to be made more clear, Christ is at work. Jesus is at work. The pre-incarnate Jesus is at work bringing light into the darkness, overcoming the darkness with his light and bringing in, in that light his life to all creation. And so, so to kind of summarize the first five verses, what we see is that in eternity past, 
prior to all things being created, prior to time itself, there is the Word. The infinite, divine, eternal, powerful, majestic second person of the Trinity. The fullest and most perfect expression of the Father dwelling in perfect relationship with God. The one who stands with all power over all creation, having brought all things into creation for himself and through himself. This is the word. This is where John, as he begins his gospel story, this is where he collectively drives our eyes. Not to Bethlehem, not to Nazareth, not to Jerusalem, not to Israel. He drives our eyes to eternity past to behold the greatness and the glory, the majesty, the power, the infinite worth and value and, and, and glory of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Look. Look unto him. Look unto Christ in the heavens, existing with the Father, creating all things. Behold his glory and his greatness. Because as we do that, as we behold his glory and his greatness, it makes what we read in verse 14 all the more crazy, all the more earth-shattering, all the more mind-boggling, all the more... Uh, cosmically transformative, intellectually staggering. There are not enough adjectives to describe the, 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 the weight of what's happening in verse 14. Because what do we read in verse 14? And the word became flesh. <laughs> we, we should just, honestly, we should just stop there. And we should pack it up and we should go home and we should meditate on that for a while and then come back together. <laughs> the word became flesh. The word who exists in perfect harmony with the Father. The, the, the word who created all things. The word who is infinite, divine, eternal, majestic, powerful, creative, light and life in and of himself. The word becomes flesh. And we think for a moment, like, what's he here to do? Now, now, this is a, this is a good exercise. I, again, I said this to the first service, but this is a really good exercise. You should always do this when you're, when you're in church, and that is to think, what would I do if I'm God? Uh, it's not heretical at all. Don't worry about it. Uh, but what would I do if I was God? So let's think about it for a moment. Let's think about it for a moment in terms of how we've seen the story of Scripture unfold. All right, so go back to Genesis 1. God creates all things. And, and, and he, he, the, the scriptures tell us he, he plants a garden in the east. I've, I've tried to plant a garden. I grew one blueberry over three years. And God plants a garden, in the, and it was, it was a good blueberry. It was like the old cartoons where they're super impoverished and they cut the pea. That's what I did. Um, he plants a garden in the east, and, and what, does he, what does he put in the garden? The scripture says he puts every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every single tree. Every tree. And, and, and so God fills this garden with his goodness, with his grace, with his mercy, with his kindness, with his glory. And he takes Adam and, and he takes the woman, Eve, and where does he put them? He puts them in the garden. And Adam didn't ask to be put there. He didn't have to pay like a cover charge. God's just like, hey, let me, let me drop you into my goodness. Let me drop you into the midst of my glory. Feast. Feast upon my goodness. Feast upon my glory. Rejoice in what I have created. 
And, and we know that it's, it's not very long that they occupy this garden that they do what? They rebel. They rebel against God's goodness. They rebel against his mercy. They rebel against his kindness. They rebel against his grace. And so they're, they're cast out of the garden. They're cast out of his presence. And then we fast forward a little bit. We, we're introduced to a guy named Noah. And Noah is presented to us as a righteous man. A righteous man, unlike anyone else in his generation. And we, like Lamech, we begin to think, what? This is a guy. This is a guy who's going to free us from our toil. This is a guy who's going to bring us rest. This is a guy who's going to bring us peace. And surely Noah is used to bring salvation through the ark, right? But 10 minutes off the boat, where do we find him? Drunk and naked and rolling around in his tent. And we realize that, no, Noah's not the guy that's going to do this. Noah rebels, and then, and then we move forward, and God calls Abraham to himself, and we think this is it. He's going to make a nation, and this nation's going to do what they were created to do. And God does this miraculous work of salvation where he comes in, and before the whole watching world, conquers the gods of Egypt, destroys them, obliterates the gods of Egypt, and he rescues his people. He saves his people. He brings them to, them, to himself, walks them through the Red Sea. We got this pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud, and, and God majestically and miraculously, he drowns the Egyptian army and he delivers his people. And how long is it that they're in the wilderness that they begin to complain? Oh, that we had died in Egypt instead of being brought out here to die in the wilderness. Rather die at home than in the desert. At least we had onions back there. Those are some really amazing onions, I guess. And like 15 minutes in, they're complaining. And Moses says, you're, why are you grumbling? Your, your, your complaining's not against us. Your, your grumbling's not against me. You're grumbling against God. And then the whole history of Israel becomes what? A history of failure. They get in the land and God, God defeats giants. A giants he defeats, all right? Like, I imagine Israel, I don't know about you, but I always imagine Israel, like, wandering around with, like, pitchforks and shovels, right? These were, these were, like, an agrarian people who were slaves. It's not like they're making swords in their basement, right? Like, they don't have weaponry. And then they go in and they conquer giants. They walk around Jericho, and the walls fall down. I mean, they don't even lift a hammer. It's like they're playing a trumpet, and it's like, doop. And, and God's like, there you go. And then they settle in the land, and what do they do? They rebel. They rebel. They worship Baal. They worship Asherah. They, they offer their children to Molech. And so now the, the word becomes flesh. And, and I say this, obviously, tongue-in-cheek, but, but if I was the word, I would, I'd, I'd be coming to wreck house. I would be coming to say, you know, I've had enough. This is done. And yet that's not what Christ came to do. John writes, and the word became flesh and, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John says he came and he, he dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us. Now, we can't, we can't underemphasize or overemphasize, overemphasize. We can't overemphasize the importance, the significance of that. What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is God's presence among his people. If we think about how Israel encamped, the tabernacle was in the center, and Israel encamped in circles around the tabernacle, the tabernacle being God's presence among his people. But the tabernacle is doing what? The tabernacle is pointing backwards, isn't it? The tabernacle is pointing back to something that was lost in Genesis chapter 3. 
Remember, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They're, they're kicked out of God's presence. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They knew that sound because obviously it happened before. And so here comes their, their God to be among them. And they run from him, they hide from him. And ever since then, men has been cast out from the presence of God. And, and the tabernacle and the temple are a reminder. They are a reminder of what was lost because these are mediated presences, right? It's a mediated presence of God through the tabernacle. It's a mediated presence of God through the temple. But now, now, in Christ Jesus, what do we find? We find the very presence of God. God himself moving and living and walking among his people. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises that God has been making for centuries. I will be your God and you will be my people. And here is Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. His very presence moving and living and walking among his people. And he has not come to destroy. He has not come to condemn. What has he come to do? To deliver grace upon grace. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ, right? He says, for the fullness, from, for from his fullness, this is verse 16, <coughs> excuse me, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Christ comes and what does he do? He brings grace and truth. He reveals the Father to his people. He reveals the Father to us. And what does he reveal? What is the truth that Jesus makes known? That God is rich in grace. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, he delights in lavishing his grace upon his people. And how, how is this, this grace manifested? How is it declared? How is it made known? Not through triumph, not through triumph, but through suffering, through death. Christ did not come to condemn the world, but Christ came that, so that through him the world might be saved. Christ did not come to condemn us in our sinfulness as we deserve, but rather he came to take our condemnation upon himself. He came to take the death that you and I deserve so that through him we can receive grace upon grace Upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. If God has a storehouse of grace and he, if he has a shovel, it never runs out. I've probably used this analogy before, but it's the most appropriate one that comes to my mind right now. And oftentimes, if something comes to my mind, I say, don't say it. But this I'm going to say. It's like Scrooge McDuck. If any of you remember Scrooge McDuck and he had, uh, he had a vault full of coins... Now, let's not argue the physics here, all right? You can't actually jump into a vault of coins. You'll break your neck, I imagine. But he would jump in and he would swim around, and he was never out of money, always had tons of money. God has far more abundant grace than Scrooge McDuck has coins. I don't even think Scrooge McDuck is real. But he has tons and tons and tons of grace, and Christ comes to make that known. Now, one last thing I want to say in closing. We know why Christ came. He came to bring grace upon grace. He came to save us. He came to deliver us, the second person of the Trinity, taking to himself human flesh so that through him we can be saved. But one thing we need to consider uh, as we close this morning is the necessity of his coming. 
Sometimes I feel like that's a, that's a discussion that gets overlooked at times, is, is why was it necessary that Christ came in human flesh? Why, why was it necessary that the second person of the Trinity took unto himself human nature? Is it necessary that the second person of the Trinity took unto himself human nature? Well, I would argue it is necessary. And the writer of Hebrews explains to us why it was necessary. And not only does he explain to us why it was necessary that the second person in the Trinity take to himself human nature, he also tells us what that means for us as we leave here today. Right, we're walking out this morning. We're going to leave this morning. And Lord willing, we are going to rejoice that the second person of the Trinity came to earth, took to himself human nature so that through him we could receive grace upon grace and be saved. Hopefully, we're going to rejoice over that. But we also need to know what that means for us day in and day out as we live our life. What does it mean for you tomorrow morning that you wake up that Jesus Christ took to himself human nature? What does that mean? What does it mean to you next week? What does it mean to you December 26th? (laughs) Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So I'm going to close by reading from Hebrews chapter 2. I'm actually going to begin in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, not ashamed. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is a devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It was necessary. Christ did not come to redeem angels. He didn't come to redeem cattle or bulls or goats or sheep. He came to redeem you and me. He came to save his people. And in order to do so, he needed to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a faithful and good high priest making propitiation, that is wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins so that we could receive grace upon grace from God the Father. And not only that, because he came in human flesh, because he took to himself human nature, he knows what it is to suffer, to be tempted. He knows what it is to, to be sorrowful, to be hungry. He knows what it is to be us. And so he is able to minister to us in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our joys, in the midst of our pains, Christ is ever present and ready to minister to us as a faithful high priest because he has taken to himself human nature and he knows. And so we rejoice. We rejoice that the second person of the Trinity 
the eternally existent, powerful, majestic word of God took to himself human nature so that through him we could receive grace upon grace upon grace, not only in salvation, but to face the life that he is calling us to live, knowing that he is with us every step of the way as a faithful high priest in the service of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, give us a thousand years and adjectives would fail us. Give us a thousand years and the human language would not suffice to, to declare the greatness and the glory of what you have done through Christ Jesus. Father, teach us to rejoice. Teach us to marvel again, to stand in awe the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And may we rejoice in that, Father, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.